19. Fight was set down to a love of power and anxiety to keep the Senate in subjection, stung with the reproaches with which he was assailed, and elated in some degree by his victory at Dirakim. He resolved to bring the contest to an issue. Accordingly, he offered battle to Caesar in the plain of Pharsalus, or Pharsalia, in Thessaly. The numbers on either side were very unequal. Pompey had 45.000 foot soldiers and 7,000 horse. Caesar 22.000 foot soldiers and 1,000 horse. The battle, which was fought on the 9th of August, B.C. 48, according to the old calendar, ended in the total defeat of Pompey's army. The Battle of Pharsalia decided the fate of Pompey and the Republic. Pompey was at once driven to despair. He made no attempt to rally his forces, though he might still have collected a considerable army, but, regarding everything as lost, he hurried to the sea coast with a few friends. He embarked on board a merchant ship at the mouth of the river Pinus, and first sailed to Lesbos, where he took on board his wife Cornelia, and from thence made for Cyprus. He now determined to seek refuge in Egypt, as he had been the means of restoring to his kingdom Ptolemy Auletes, the father of the young Egyptian monarch. On his death in B.C. 51 Ptolemy Auletes had left directions that his son should reign jointly with his elder sister Cleopatra, but their joint reign did not last long. For Ptolemy, or, rather, Pothinus and Achilles, his chief advisers, expelled his sister from the throne. Cleopatra collected a force in Syria, with which she invaded Egypt. The generals of Ptolemy were encamped opposite her, near Alexandria, when Pompey arrived off the coast and craved the protection of the young king. This request threw Pothinus and Achilles into great difficulty, for there were many of Pompey's old soldiers in the Egyptian army, and they feared he would become master of Egypt. They therefore determined to put him to death. Accordingly, they sent out a small boat, took Pompey on board with three or four attendants, and rowed for the shore. His wife and friends watched him from the ship, anxious to see in what manner he would be received by the king, who was standing on the edge of the sea with his troops. Just as the boat reached the shore, and Pompey was in the act of rising from his seat in order to step on land, he was stabbed in the back by Septimus, who had formerly been one of his centurions. Achilles and the rest then drew their swords, whereupon Pompey, without uttering a word, covered his face with his toga, and calmly submitted to his fate. He had just completed his fifty-eighth year, his head was cut off, and his body, which was cast naked upon the shore, was buried by his freedman Philippus, who had accompanied him from the ship. The head was brought to Caesar when he arrived in Egypt soon afterward, but he turned away from the site, shed tears at the untimely end of his rival and put his murderers to death. When news of the Battle of Pharsalia reached Rome, various laws were passed which conferred supreme power upon Caesar. Though absent, he was nominated dictator a second time, and for a whole year, he appointed M. Antonis his master of the horse, and entered upon the office in September of this year B.C. 48. He was also nominated to the consulship for the next five years. Though he did not avail himself of this privilege, and he was invested with the tribunitial power for life, Caesar went to Egypt in pursuit of Pompey, and upon his arrival there he became involved in a war, which detained him several months, and gave the remains of the Pompeian party time to rally and to make fresh preparations for continuing the struggle. The war in Egypt, usually called the Alexandrian War, arose from Caesar's resolving to settle the disputes respecting the succession to the kingdom. He determined that Cleopatra, whose fascinations completely won his heart, and her brother Ptolemy, should reign in common. 
according to the provisions of their father's will, but as this decision was opposed by the guardians of the young king, a war broke out between them and Caesar, in which he was for some time exposed to great danger on account of the small number of his troops, but, having received reinforcements, he finally prevailed, and placed Cleopatra and her younger brother on the throne, the elder having perished in the course of the contest, Cleopatra afterward joined Caesar at Rome, and bore him a son named Caesarion, after bringing the Alexandrian war to a close, toward the end of March, B.C. 47, Caesar marched through Syria into Pontus in order to attack Pharnaces, the son of the celebrated Mithridates, who had defeated Sion, Domitius Calvinus, one of Caesar's lieutenants. This war, however, did not detain him long, for Pharnaces, venturing to come to an open battle with the dictator, was utterly defeated on the 2d of August near Zola. It was in reference to this victory that Caesar sent the celebrated laconic dispatch to the Senate. Veni, Veni, beside, I came, I saw, I conquered. He then proceeded to Rome, caused himself to be appointed dictator for another year, and nominated Amulius Lepidus his master of the horse. At the same time he quelled a formidable mutiny of his troops which had broken out in Campania. Caesar did not remain in Rome more than two or three months. With his usual activity and energy he set out to Africa before the end of the year B.C. 47, in order to carry on the war against Scipio and Cato, who had collected a large army in that country. Their forces were far greater than those which Caesar could bring against them, but he had too much reliance on his own genius to be alarmed by mere disparity of numbers. At first he was in considerable difficulties, but, having been joined by some of his other legions, he was able to prosecute the campaign with more vigor and finally brought it to a close by the Battle of Papsus, on the 6th of April, B.C. 46, in which the Pompeian army was completely defeated. All Africa now submitted to Caesar with the exception of Utica, which Cato commanded. The inhabitants saw that resistance was hopeless, and Cato, who was a sincere Republican, resolved to die rather than submit to Caesar's despotism. After spending the greater part of the night in perusing Plato's Phaedo, a dialogue on the immortality of the soul, he stabbed himself. His friends, hearing him fall, ran up, found him bathed in blood, and, while he was fainting, dressed his wounds. When, however, he recovered feeling, he tore off the bandages, and so died. Caesar returned to Rome by the end of July. He was now a disputed master of the Roman world. Great apprehensions were entertained by his enemies last. Notwithstanding his former clemency, he should imitate Marius and Sulla and proscribe all his opponents, but these fears were perfectly groundless, a love of cruelty was no part of Caesar's nature, and, with a magnanimity which victors rarely showed, and least of all those in civil wars, he freely forgave all who had borne arms against him, and declared that he should make no difference between Pompeians and Caesarians, his object was now to allay animosities, and to secure the lives and property of all the citizens of his empire. As soon as the news of his African victory reached Rome a public thanksgiving of forty days was decreed in his honor, the dictatorship was bestowed upon him for ten years, and the censorship, under the new title of Prefectus Morum, for three years, Caesar had never yet enjoyed a triumph, and, as he had now no farther enemies to meet, he availed himself of the opportunity of celebrating his victories in Gaul, Egypt, Pontus, and Africa, by four magnificent triumphs, none of these however, were in honor of his successes in the civil war, and consequently his African triumph was to commemorate his victory over Juba, and not over Scipio and Cato, 
These triumphs were followed by largesses of corn and money to the people and the soldiers, by public banquets, and all sorts of entertainments. Caesar now proceeded to correct the various evils which had crept into the state, and to obtain the enactment of several laws suitable to the altered condition of the commonwealth. He attempted, by severe sumptuary laws, to restrain the extravagance which pervaded all classes of society. But the most important of his changes this year B.C. 40 was the reformation of the calendar, which was a real benefit to his country and the civilized world, and which he accomplished in his character as Pontifex Maximus. The regulation of the Roman calendar had always been entrusted to the College of Pontiffs, who had been accustomed to lengthen or shorten the year at their pleasure for political purposes, and the confusion had at length become so great that the Roman year was three months behind the real time. To remedy this serious evil, Caesar added 90 days to the current year, and thus made it consist of 445 days, and he guarded against a repetition of similar errors for the future by adapting the year to the sun's course. In the midst of these labors Caesar was interrupted by intelligence of a formidable insurrection which had broken out in Spain, where the remains of the Pompeian party had again collected a large army under the command of Pompey's sons, Knives and Sextus. Caesar set out for Spain at the end of B.C. 46. With his usual activity he arrived at Obelco, near Cordoba, in 27 days from the time of his leaving Rome. He found the enemy able to offer stronger opposition than he had anticipated but he brought the war to a close by the Battle of Munda, on the 17th of March, B.C. 46, in which he entirely defeated the enemy. It was, however, a hard-fought battle, Caesar's troops were at first driven back, and were only rallied by their generals exposing his own person, like a common soldier, in the front line of the battle. Sien, Pompeius was killed shortly afterward, but Sextus made good his escape. The settlement of the affairs in Spain detained Caesar in the province some months longer, and he consequently did not reach Rome till September. At the beginning of October he entered the city in triumph on account of his victories in Spain. Although the victory had been gained over Roman citizens, the Senate received him with the most servile flattery. They had in his absence voted a public thanksgiving of fifty days, and they now vied with each other in paying him every kind of adulation and homage. He was to wear on all public occasions, the triumphal robe, he was to receive the title of father of his country, statues of him were to be placed in all the temples, his portrait was to be struck on coins, the month of Quintilis was to receive the name of Julius in his honor, and he was to be raised to a rank among the gods, but there were still more important decrees than these, which were intended to illegalize his power, and confer upon him the whole government of the Roman world, he received the title of Imperator for life, he was nominated consul for the next ten years, and both dictator and prefectus morum for life, his person was declared sacred, a guard of senators and knights was appointed to protect him, and the whole senate took an oath to watch over his safety. If we now look at the way in which Caesar exerted his sovereign power, it cannot be denied that he used it in the main for the good of his country. He still pursued his former merciful course, no proscriptions or executions took place, and he began to revolve vast schemes for the benefit of the Roman world. At the same time he was obliged to reward his followers, and for that reason he greatly increased the number of senators and magistrates, so that there were sixteen praetors, forty quaestors, and six ediles, and new members were added to the priestly colleges, among other plans of internal improvement. He proposed to frame a digest of all the Roman laws, to establish public libraries, to drain the Pomptine marshes, 
to enlarge the harbour of Ostia and to dig a canal through the Isthmus of Corinth, to protect the boundaries of the Roman Empire. He meditated expeditions against the Parthians and the barbarous tribes on the Danube, and had already begun to make preparations for his departure to the east. In the midst of these vast projects he entered upon the last year of his life, B.C. 44, and his fifth consulship and dictatorship. He had made M. Antonis his colleague in the consulship, and M. Lepidus the master of the horse. He had for some time past resolved to preserve the supreme power in his family, and, as he had no legitimate children, he had fixed upon his great-nephew Octavius afterward the Emperor Augustus as his successor, possessing royal power. He now wished to obtain the title of king, and accordingly prevailed upon his colleague Antonis to offer him the diadem in public on the festival of the Lepercalia the 15th of February. But the very name of king had long been hateful at Rome, and the people displayed such an evident dislike to the proposal that it was dropped for the present. The conspiracy against Caesar's life had been formed as early as the beginning of the year. It had been set on foot by C. Cassius Longinus, a personal enemy of Caesar's and more than sixty persons were privy to it. Private hatred alone seems to have been the motive of Cassius, and probably of several others. Many of them had taken an active part in the war against Caesar, and had not only been forgiven by him, but raised to offices of rank and honor. Among others was M. Junius Brutus, who had been pardoned by Caesar after the Battle of Pharsalia, and had since been treated almost as his son. In this very year Caesar had made him praetor and held out to him the prospect of the consulship. Brutus, like Cato, seems to have been a sincere Republican, and Cassius persuaded him to join the conspiracy, and imitate his great ancestor who freed them from the Tarquins. It was now arranged to assassinate the dictator in the Senate House on the Ides or 15th of March. Rumors of the plot got abroad, and Caesar was strongly urged not to attend the Senate, but he disregarded the warnings which were given him, as he entered. The Senate rose to do him honor, and when he had taken his seat, the conspirators pressed around him as if to support the prayer of Tilly's Chimmer, who entreated the dictator to recall his brother from banishment. When Caesar began to show displeasure at their importunity, Tilly seized him by his toga, which was the signal for attack. Cascus struck the first blow, and the other conspirators bared their weapons. Caesar defended himself till he saw Brutus had drawn his sword, and then exclaiming, And thou! To Brutus, he drew his toga over his head, and fell pierced with three and twenty wounds at the foot of Pompey's statue. Caesar's death was undoubtedly a loss not only to the Roman people, but the whole civilized world. The Republic was utterly lost. The Roman world was now called to go through many years of disorder and bloodshed, till it rested again under the supremacy of Augustus. The last days of the Republic had come, and its only hope of peace and security was under the strong hand of military power. Caesar was in his fifty-sixth year at the time of his death. His personal appearance was noble and commanding, he was tall in stature, of a fair complexion, and with black eyes full of expression. He never wore a beard, and in the latter part of his life his head was bald. His constitution was originally delicate, and he was twice attacked by epilepsy while transacting public business, but, by constant exercise and abstemious living, he had acquired strong and vigorous health and could endure almost any amount of exertion. He took pains with his person, and was considered to be effeminate in his dress. Caesar was probably the greatest man of antiquity. He was at one and the same time a general, a statesman, a lawgiver, a jurist, an orator, a poet, a historian, a philologer, a mathematician, and an architect. 
he was equally fitted to excel in everything, and has given proofs that he would have surpassed almost all other men in any subject to which he devoted the energies of his extraordinary mind. One fact places his genius for war in a most striking light. Till his fortieth year, when he went as proprietor into Spain, he had been almost entirely engaged in civil life and his military experience must have been of the most limited kind. Most of the greatest generals in the history of the world have been distinguished at an early age, Alexander the Great, Hannibal, Frederick of Prussia, and Napoleon Bonaparte, gained some of their most brilliant victories under the age of 30, but Caesar, from the age of 23 to 40, had seen nothing of war, and, notwithstanding, appears all at once as one of the greatest generals that the world has ever seen. Footnote 69 the crossing of the stream was in reality a declaration of war against the Republic, and later writers relate that upon arriving at the Rubicon Caesar long hesitated whether he should take this irrevocable step, and that, after pondering many hours, he at length exclaimed, The die is cast, and plunged into the river, but there is not a word of this in Caesar's own narrative. Chapter XXXVI From the death of Caesar to the Battle of Philippi, B.C. 44-42, when the bloody deed had been finished, Brutus and the other conspirators rushed into the forum, proclaiming that they had killed the tyrant, and calling the people to join them, but they met with no response, and, finding alone averted looks, they retired to the capital. Here they were joined by Cicero, who had not been privy to the conspiracy, but was now one of the first to justify the murder. Meantime the friends of Caesar were not idle. M. Lepidus, the master of the horse, who was in the neighborhood of the city, marched into the campus martis in the night, and Amandini hastened to the house of the dictator, and took possession of his papers and treasures, but both parties feared to come to blows. A compromise was agreed to, and at a meeting of the Senate it was determined that Caesar's murderers should not be punished, but, on the other hand, that all his regulations should remain in force, that the provisions of his will should be carried into effect, and that he should be honored with a public funeral. The conspirators descended from the capital, and, as a proof of reconciliation, Cassius supped with Antony and Brutus with Lepidus. This reconciliation was only a pretense. Antony aspired to succeed to the power of the dictator, and, to arouse the popular fury against the conspirators, Caesar's will was immediately made public. He left as his heir his great-nephew Octavius, a youth of eighteen, the son of Asia, the daughter of his sister Julia. He bequeathed considerable legacies to his murderers. He gave his magnificent gardens beyond the Tiber to the public, and to every Roman citizen he bequeathed the sum of three hundred sesterces between L2 and L8 sterling. When this became known a deep feeling of sorrow for the untimely fate of their benefactor seized the minds of the people. Their feelings were raised to the highest point two or three days afterward, when the funeral took place. The body was to be burned in the Campus Martis, but it was previously carried to the Forum, where Antony, according to custom, pronounced the funeral oration over it, after relating the exploits of the great dictator, reciting his will, and describing his terrible death, he lifted up the blood-stained robe which Caesar had worn in the Senate House, and which had hitherto covered the corpse, and pointed out the numerous wounds which disfigured the body, at the sight a yell of indignation was raised, and the mob rushed in every direction to tear the murderers to pieces, the conspirators fled for their lives from the city, the poet Helvi Sinna being mistaken for the Praetor Sinna, one of the assassins, was sacrificed on the spot before the mistake could be explained. Antony was now master of Rome, being in possession of Caesar's papers. 
he was able to plead the authority of the dictator for everything which he pleased. The conspirators hastened to take possession of the provinces which Caesar had assigned to them. December Brutus repaired to Cisalpine Gaul, and Brutus to Macedonia, and Caesars to Syria. Antony now made a disposition of the provinces, taking Cisalpine Gaul for himself, and giving Macedonia to his brother C. Antonis, and Syria to Dolabella. Meantime a new actor appeared upon the stage. Octavius was at Apollonia, a town on the coast of Illyricum. At the time of his uncle's death, Caesar had determined to take his nephew with him in his expedition against the Parthians, and had accordingly sent him to Apollonia, where a camp had been formed, that he might pursue his military studies. The soldiers now offered to follow him to Italy and avenge their leader's death, but he did not yet venture to take this decisive step. He determined, however, to sail at once to Italy, accompanied by only a few friends. Upon arriving at Brundusim he heard of the will of the dictator, and was saluted by the soldiers as Caesar. As the adopted heir of his uncle his proper name was now C. Julius Caesar Octavianus, and by the last of these names we shall henceforth call him. He now made up his mind to proceed to Rome and claim his uncle's inheritance, in opposition to the advice of his mother, who dreaded this dangerous honor for her son. Upon arriving at Rome he declared before the praetor, in the usual manner, that he accepted the inheritance, and he then promised the people to pay the money bequeathed to them. He even ventured to claim of Antony the treasures of his uncle, but, as the latter refused to give them up, he sold the other property, and even his own estates, to discharge all the legacies. Antony threw every obstacle in his way, but the very name of Caesar worked wonders, and the liberality of the young man gained the hearts of the people. He had, indeed, a difficult part to play. He could not join the murderers of his uncle, and yet Antony, their greatest enemy, was also his most dangerous foe. In these difficult circumstances the youth displayed a prudence and a wisdom which baffled the most experienced politicians. Without committing himself to any party, he professed a warm attachment to the Senate. Cicero had once more taken an active part in public affairs, and Octavian, with that dissimulation which he practiced throughout his life, completely deceived the veteran orator. On the 2nd of September Cicero delivered in the Senate the first of his orations against Antony, which, in imitation of those of Demosthenes against Philip, are known by the name of the Philippics. Antony was absent at the time, but shortly afterward attacked the orator in unmeasured terms. Cicero replied in the second Philippic, one of the most violent invectives ever written. It was not spoken, but was published soon after Antony had quitted Rome. Meantime the emissaries of Octavian had been sounding the disposition of the soldiers, and had already enlisted for him a considerable number of troops in various parts of Italy. Antony saw that the power was slipping from under his feet. Two of the legions which he had sent from Epirus passed over to Octavian, and, in order to keep the remainder under his standard, and to secure the north of Italy to his interests, Antony now proceeded to Cisalpine Gaul, which had been previously granted to him by the Senate. Upon entering the province toward the end of November, December Brutus threw himself into Mudna Magna, to which Antony laid siege. Soon after Antony's departure Cicero prevailed upon the Senate to declare Antony a public enemy, and to entrust to the young Octavian the conduct of the war against him. Cicero was now at the height of his glory, his activity was unceasing, and in the twelve remaining Philippics he encouraged the Senate and the people to prosecute the war with vigor. The two new consuls B.C. 48 were A. Herdes and C. Vibius Pansa, both of whom had been designated by the late dictator. As soon as they had entered upon their office, 
Perdis, accompanied by Octavian, marched into Cisalpine Gaul, while Pansa remained in the city to levy troops. For some weeks no movement of importance took place in either army, but when Pansa set out to join his colleague and Octavian, Antony marched southward, attacked him at Forum Gallorum, near Bononia Galoni, and gained a victory over him April 14th. Pansa was mortally wounded, but Herdes retrieved this disaster by suddenly attacking Antony the same evening on his return to the camp at Mutna. A few days afterward April 27th a more decisive battle took place before Mutna. Antony was defeated with great loss, but Herdes fell in leading an assault on the besiegers' camp. The death of the two consuls left Octavian the sole command, and so timely was their removal that he was accused by many of murdering them. Antony now found it impossible to continue the siege of Mutna but he retreated in good order northward, crossed the Alps, and was well received in farther Gaul by Lepidus, who had promised him support. Meantime the good understanding between Octavian and the Senate had come to an end. The latter, being resolved to prevent him from obtaining any farther power, gave the command of the consular armies to D. Brutus, and Cicero talked of removing the boy. But the boy soon showed the Senate that he was their master. He gained the confidence of the soldiers who gladly followed the heir of Caesar to Rome, though only twenty years of age. He demanded of the Senate the consulship. At first they attempted to evade his demand, but his soldiers were encamped in the Campus Martis, and in the month of August he was elected consul with his cousin Cupides. The first act of his consulship showed that he had completely broken with the Senate. His colleague proposed a law declaring all the murderers of Caesar to be outlaws. Octavian then quitted Rome to march professedly against Antony leaving Pides in charge of the city, but it soon appeared that he had come to an understanding with Antony, for he had hardly entered Etruria before the unwilling Senate were compelled, upon the proposal of Pides, to repeal the sentence of outlawry against Antony and Lepidus. These two were now descending the Alps at the head of seventeen legions. Octavian was advancing northward with a formidable army. Between two such forces the situation of De Brutus was hopeless. He was deserted by his own troops and fled to Aquileia, intending to cross over to Macedonia, but was put to death in the former place by order of Antony. Lepidus, who acted as mediator between Antony and Octavian, now arranged a meeting between them on a small island near Bononia, formed by the waters of the river Rhenus, a tributary of the Po. The interview took place near the end of November. It was arranged that the government of the Roman world should be divided between the three for a period of five years. Under the title of Triumvirs for Settling the Affairs of the Republic, Octavian received Sicily, Sardinia, and Africa, Antony the two Gauls, with the exception of the Narbonne's district, which, with Spain, was assigned to Alepidus. Octavian and Antony were to prosecute the war against Brutus and Cassius, who were in possession of the eastern provinces. Lepidus was to receive the consulship for the following year, with the charge of Italy. The triumvirs next proceeded to imitate the example of Sulla by drawing up a proscription a list of persons whose lives were to be sacrificed and property confiscated, but they had not Sulla's excuse. He returned to Italy exasperated to the highest degree by the murder of his friends and the personal insults he had received. The triumvirs, out of a cold-blood policy, resolved to remove everyone whose opposition they feared or whose property they coveted, in drawing up the fatal list. They sacrificed without scruple their nearest relatives and friends, to please Antony. Octavian gave up Cicero, Antony, in return, surrendered his own uncle, El Caesar, and Lepidus sacrificed his own brother Paus. As many as 300 senators and 2,000 equites were entered on the lists, 
As soon as the triumvirs had made their secret arrangements they marched toward Rome. Hitherto they had published the names of only seventeen of the proscribed, but the city was in a state of the utmost alarm, and it was with difficulty that Pythes could preserve the peace. So great were his anxiety and fatigue that he died the night before the entry of the triumvirs into the city. They marched into Rome at the head of their legions, and filled all the public places with their soldiery. No attempt at resistance was made. A law was proposed and carried conferring upon the triumvirs the title and powers they had assumed. The work of butchery then commenced. Lists after lists of the proscribed were then published, each more numerous than the former. The soldiers hunted after the victims, cut off their heads, and brought them to the authorities to prove their claims to the blood money. Slaves were rewarded for betraying their masters, and whoever harbored any of the proscribed was punished with death. Terror reigned throughout Italy. No one knew whose turn would come next. Cicero was included in the first seventeen victims of the proscription. He was residing in his toy school on villa with his brother Quintus, who urged him to escape to Brutus in Macedonia. They reached Astra, a small island off Antium, when Quintus ventured to Rome to obtain a supply of money, of which they were in need. Here he was apprehended, together with his son, and both were put to death. The orator again embarked, and coasted along to Formiae where he landed at his villa, resolving no longer to fly from his fate. After spending a night in his own house, his attendants, hearing that the soldiers were close at hand, forced him to enter a litter, and hurried him through the woods toward the shore, distant a mile from his house. As they were passing onward they were overtaken by their pursuers, and were preparing to defend their master with their lives, but Cicero commanded them to desist, and, stretching his head out of the litter, called upon his executioners to strike. They instantly cut off his head and hands, which were carried to her own. Fulvia, the widow of Clodes and now the wife of Antony, gloated her eyes with the sight, and even thrust a hairpin through his tongue. Antony ordered the head to be nailed to the rostra, which had so often witnessed the triumphs of the orator. Thus died Cicero, in the sixty-fourth year of his age. He had not sufficient firmness of character to cope with the turbulent times in which his lot was cast. But as a man he deserves our admiration and love. In the midst of almost universal corruption he remained incontaminated. He was an affectionate father, a faithful friend, and a kind master. Many of the proscribed escaped from Italy, and took refuge with Sextus Pompey in Sicily, and with Brutus and Cassius in the east. After the death of Caesar, the Senate appointed Sextus Pompey to the command of the Republican fleet. He had become master of Sicily, his fleet commanded the Mediterranean and Rome began to suffer from want. 